Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 211 of the Spoiler Alert podcast brought to you by MovieOutsiders.com. I'm Danny, and I'm here with Mike, and tonight the best picture choosing machine has spat another one out at us, this time right in the frickin' eye. It's 1941's best picture winner, How Green Was My Valley? Mike, how the hell are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Danny. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm doing right really well. Right in the freaking eye. Right in the freaking eye. You know, we uh, we just did the the French Connection a few weeks back, so we did another Best Picture winner. Typically, we try to take a few episodes in between Best Picture winners, right. but due to the uh, sort of periodic overloading of the summer film schedule, we've got a few episodes coming that are bottlenecked. So we uh, took the opportunity here to, to change it up and to introduce an, an additional Best Picture winner. Popsicle one I had not one seen. Yep. Right. H- had you ever seen this before? I had not seen this movie before, no. Had you read the book that it is based upon? I did not. Had you? I had not. So this is entirely new to me. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. Through my intensive research, I learned that this film is supposedly not only Clint Eastwood's favorite movie of all time, but also Alex Trebek. Oh, is that right? And if there's anyone whose taste in films I respect, it's Alex Trebek's. Well, he's, he's read a question about all of them at least once. He's known for his discerning taste, and I just think if it's good enough for Trebek, it's good enough for me. So I don't even know that we need to see this. It's why you bought a bunch it. of reverse mortgages. Because Alex Trebek's behind them. You keep, exactly. You keep reverse mortgaging your house and then buying other houses and reverse mortgaging on them because he says to. I'm like Steve Carell in The Office when I got a vasectomy and then a reverse vasectomy and then a vasectomy again. Like I just keep like getting a reverse mortgage and then taking out another mortgage yeah. and then reversing it again. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So this could be one of the... You know, we often talk about did the Academy get it right? And there have been movies in the last 20 years where, with the benefit of even like four or five years hindsight, you can look back and just shake your head at Renee Zellweger winning for Crash! Cold Mountain uh, uh, Crash, Crash yeah. winning Best Picture. I, I still, I'm not totally down on Shakespeare in Love like many are, but that's considered one of the Academy's flops. This movie beat. Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, today largely regarded as one of the best movies ever made. I mean, it's almost on within the top five of any list that you find. Yeah. Uh, re- really, Orson Welles' probably best movie. He was a very young, exciting director at the time. And How Green Was My Valley ends up winning Best Picture. John Ford ends up winning for directing the picture. And uh, Citizen Kane goes home with like a screenplay award, and so, yeah, yeah, that's that's about yeah, it. Yeah, Citizen Kane came in nominated for nine Academy Awards. It won one for best original screenplay. Um, Orson Welles was twenty five years old at the time, and he was nominated um, for best film, best director, best actor, and best screenplay. But he also came into the night having called the studio executives in Hollywood a bunch of overpaid office boys. And he was actively booed when he went up to accept his Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. That'll so, get you. Uh, Citizen Kane was also a huge box office flap that year and was one of the major duds. So that is a movie that, in hindsight, has only seen its stock rise. Uh-huh. Whereas, as you mentioned, a lot of other winners... 
people kind of left people scratching their heads. How green my was my valley? Uh, incidentally, was the box office champ from 1941. Got it. And I can see so, why. I mean, this movie is it's funny, it's light, it is one you want to see over and over again. <laughs> right. It's a laugh a minute thrill ride. John <laughs> Ford, by the way, not only did he win best director for this, this was his third best director Oscar already, and this is the 14th ceremony jeez uh he went on to win one more time and is still the winningest best director of all time with four best director oscars this was back in the days when they had 10 films nominated for best picture as a standard rule uh alfred hitchcock's suspicion notable amongst them as well as the maltese falcon the maltese falcon another movie we reviewed other than that not a lot that i know on this list quite honestly uh, I'm the same. I looked through a number of the other uh, pictures. Sergeant York, Gary Cooper won Best Actor for Sergeant York. I believe I saw that once, but okay. uh, it wasn't memorable enough. I mean, when you have Citizen Kane and the Maltese Falcon in the mix, you know those are the two that are going to sort of rise to the top in your mind. But both overshadowed by the by the winner of How Green Was My Valley, and every award overshadowed by the category Best Scoring of a Dramatic Picture, which had 20 nominees. Really? Yeah. That is really something. And and that was a separate category for best scoring of a musical picture, which had 10. Wow. This was also the first year where they introduced best documentary as a category. Ah, all right. Dropping some some science on me. Some Some heavy Academy Awards facts. Yeah. Well, why don't we get into the picture? We'll do a quick plot recap, and I'm eager to discuss this. This doesn't necessarily need to be a, an entire what's up with episode like we did for French Connection. But I have a lot of what's up. <laughs> well, let's get to it. I've just been sitting here picking my feet anyway. So how green was my valley? <laughs> how, I can't even. That's such a disgusting visual. Go ahead. How, how green was my valley is the story of a Welsh coal mining family, the Morgans told by Hugh, the youngest child, but narrated in his old age. It details his life story, which consists of the following highlights. A mother and father that had Hugh way late in their lives. Dad is clearly right-leaning and anti-union. An infatuation with his oldest brother's wife, Bronwyn, which he later tries to parlay when his older brother dies in a mining accident. A family torn apart by a miner's strike and pressure to unionize, much to the dismay of the father. Temporary loss of the use of his legs when he suffers severe frostbite after diving into an icy river to save his drowning mother. A sister trapped in a loveless marriage, forced to flee the country as the real object of her affection is the local minister. A gift of intelligence well beyond the rest of his family, which he's rewarded for with repeated abuse at the hands of his classmates and teachers, forcing him into the same path of the coal mines as the rest of his family. The opportunity to spend his father's last living moments by his side in a mining cave-in. And once the town has become a blackened, abandoned village, a sad departure with his last few possessions. And that's how green was my valley. Danny, what did you think? Mike, I'm going to just go on record right away and say I struggled with this film. And I'm really going to try to delineate my dislike for the story. And many of the characters from the quality of the filmmaking. Because I think it's a fairly successful film. I think knowing what the story was supposed to be, I think the the film got that across real well. There are a lot of characters. There's a lot going on. 
and you said it's really the story of the Morgans, and I agree. But I think more than I think more than that, it's the story of the town, the town and that yeah. way of life. And I think it does a pretty decent job if you're setting out to try and capture what it was like to live in a small Welsh mining town. Okay, I think it accomplishes that. But having said all that, I freaking hated this movie. It was terribly boring, and I never want to see it again. Yeah. What do you think? I, I think that I would just second everything that you said. I think that it it told a story. You see it in a you, you see the story of a a whole culture of people with this little slice of one family that you observe everything that happens in that town through. And I do think that I, I do think that there were a lot of the craft elements of the movie that were well made. I, w- I watched it on a, a Blu-ray transfer, which was actually in black and white, really quite pretty. I mean, the the scenes of the village in its heyday were really beautifully shot. And even the, the kind of scary, dark, awful scenes in the coal mines were actually, I think, really beautifully shot. I think that that was something that I could appreciate about the movie. But this is one where I'm like... I'm checking Facebook on my phone every few minutes and like like I think I was 20 20 minutes in and I swore I must be halfway done with this movie and checked how far I was and was like oh my god I I need to take a break and get something to eat because I I just need to leave the room this is this is dreary I I agree I concur I I did think that Donald Crisp who plays the father uh, he won Best Supporting Actor for right. his portrayal, and I actually thought he did a really nice job. And he was given a lot of heavy lifting to do throughout the movie. And his character sort of bounds around from being this ebullient family man, sort of gregarious man about town whom everybody loves, to being a total pariah because he doesn't support the unions. Right. Or, you know, he's so ha- he's, he, he's in tears when he learns one of his sons is going to have the honor of singing for the queen of England. And yet another one of his sons wants to speak during dinner and he basically disowns him. Yeah. Right. In that one scene. So there's a lot going on with that guy. He's a pretty uh, conflicted and complex character, but I still liked him and I really liked Donald Crisp. So I thought he did a really nice job. I actually thought that Roddy McDowell playing the young Hugh was quite good in the role as well. I think that, he had a lot of heavy lifting to do. Uh, some, of, you know, some of the scenes he certainly showed his youth, but I think that overall, I mean, he was a a child actor that went on to a long Hollywood career as an adult, and I think you can see why here. I did not understand why. I mean, Hugh, played by Roddy McDowell, was is so young. I kind of got the sense from the movie that this it felt like as though this was supposed to take over a period, uh, take place over a period of a number of years. But Hugh doesn't seem to age at all. So I was left like, well, is it really just like one year or one school year? It feels like this is one of those stories that spans a decade or something. But well, it seems like it should have still been. 12 years old yeah, the whole time. Right. And maybe the maybe the book ages everybody a little bit more. Um, but I, I agree. Like, it, it really does look like this is maybe a slice of about maybe three years that from from start to finish maybe i mean no nobody appears to age at all in the film i said that it, it was it was a well shot movie there's some pretty scenes there's one that i i really really appreciated and i i alluded to it in the plot summary that his older sister is in love with the local preacher and uh while while their relationship has not gotten i, I guess what you could call inappropriate i mean they they 
they clearly had affection for one another, but it isn't scandalous by any means. Um, you can tell that she knows that this is never going to pan out, and he kind of knows it's never going to work out, and so she goes and marries the miner's son for a life of wealth, but uh, unlikely any love. And at the wedding, there, you, she, you can just tell on her face. She does not want to be there oh, at yeah, all. She, I mean, looks, she looks horrible. awful, and they, they kind of walk off as the crowd's singing. And there's a great shot of the preacher kind of emerging from up on a hill where he'd been kind of quietly, casually observing the proceedings. I found that a really moving scene. Like, you can tell, well, this is it. I mean, the, it, she's gone. That that ship has sailed. And I think they both know that they're they're going to be all the unhappier for it. I thought that was really cool. That's a great example of a really well-constructed shot. And the fact that he is in the background and he's obviously sort of smaller in the frame. But we know exactly who it is. Right. And you can tell what's going through his mind, even though he's... In the, in the background, yeah. yeah. But just to that point, the characters, uh, the actors who portray those characters, uh, the preacher is 23 years older than the woman who is playing that particular sister. So it was gross. It was like so grossly inappropriate. <laughs> you know, it's like Jack Nicholson and Miley Cyrus, um, <laughs> where you're like, I'm trying to believe that you're kind of into each other, but I, like... My skin is crawling, so I'm glad that this is not going to work out for some other reason that the story is affording me, because it was just creepy. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, there, were, there were also actually two other scenes that I liked in the movie. Two two standout moments of, of the movie that I enjoyed. One involving the preacher once again, and it's basically him going out with a bang in one of the final scenes, where, where the deacons have assembled to, I guess, just you know, vote him out for what you know, what was a relationship that has essentially ended uh, all but now, right? And and he basically goes on this rant to the whole crowd of deacons and the, the congregation of the locals where he's telling them, I see you, you hypocrites come in here every Sunday. You have no fear of God. It's just like, whoa. Yeah, he's burning whoa. bridges we, pretty, pretty we, big time. We could have written a better resignation speech here, buddy. But it was, it was fun acting for a moment. And then there's also a scene where two of the dad's friends go to Hughes' school to exact some revenge on the teacher who had been right. essentially abusing him with a switch or a stick or something like that on the playground for no reason other than they just didn't like him and probably he was not, you know, prep school. He was, you know, from the from the common folk of the village right. and right. didn't quite belong there. Uh, but these two guys, these two friends of dad were good boxers and just <laughs> beat the shit out of the guy in front of the whole class which was really really a satisfying scene for me it was and it was one of the few moments of levity in the movie i mean this movie covers a lot of ground and it's a lot of heavy material so it's again i i just didn't care for the story i just it was boring it was depressing it was a little icky, not only with the sister and the preacher, the actors there, but Hugh coveting his brother's older wife. That was creepy. And then later, really trying to position himself as the man of her household at like 12 years old, that he's just going to go ahead and go work in the mine and, and be her be her guy. That and was the part that I found creepy. Gross. I thought like him yeah. him having a crush on this, you know, he, he's what, 10, she's beautiful, she comes over, okay, I... I get that. But then when he kind of 
starts to weasel his way into her life as I can be your financial provider. I work in the mine. Now that was icky. Yeah. What's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with that? So, what's up with... The opening credits has a chorus, a, a male chorus singing what I'm, I must presume is a Welsh folk song. I could not understand a single syllable. Not, right. a, not even a word, let alone a syllable. It's, a, it's just this beautiful choir just speaking gobbledygook. And I just had to laugh. Like, could people in 1941 understand what was being sung or were they too just looking at each other like i don't i don't get this i don't know what they're saying i've been to wales and it's hard to understand them speaking english there it's a it's a thick accent what's up with at the wedding scene all the men decide to uh tap the barrel of beer and clearly none of them had given any forethought into what we're going to do once we actually get the keg open because it just starts geyser gushing beer all over the place the first guy decides he's gonna fill up his actual hat with beer and drink beer out of his hat and then everybody else is kind of looking at each other scrambling for a mug while there's just beer pouring everywhere like what 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 were you guys planning to have happen once the beer actually started flowing what's up with how people in this movie drink anyway there's a scene later in which a guy takes a cup of coffee pours the coffee into the saucer of his cup, and then drinks out of the saucer. I missed that What part. the f*** was that all about? Also, this movie opens with the narrator, with Hugh as an old man, reminiscing about what a beautiful town he lived in. And the, the shots of this town and the choking black smoke coming out of this mine, it's like hell on earth. And in fact, he's talking about how the, quote, black slag only covered a little bit of their hillside at this point. Right. It was really just a just a touch of awful, um, you know, corruption to the landscape <laughs> and the just environmental decay that we would live in. But I mean, the shots of this town were so gross and sad looking. I thought if you stripped out his narration, I would have believed that this is like Eastern European post-war footage, just like a, a European death march pit stop. You know, people who who had escaped the gulag a few months earlier are, are like stonily, you know, zombie-eyed wandering around this hellhole. And this is what this guy's like reminiscing about how gorgeous it was and what a beautiful little town. What's up with the doctor who comes to tend to young Hugh after his leg injury? Just screaming everything at the family and having having the worst bedside manner possible. Where he just he's walking out the door and screams back, "He'll probably never walk again!" Like door slams. Like this is the worst doctor ever. And he was he was living in like a bay window, right by the front of the house. So he, he hears clearly everything. heard everything. Everything that happened. We also we also see that doctor put down a mug. I think he was chugging beer while he was on his house call. Maybe that explains why he kept yelling. But before you go on, what's up with that same scene? The kid's like living in that bay window. And at one point, some birds come in and land on his bed and just chirping away. I would lose my sh- If there was like anything that could get me walking again, it would be a bird flying in the window <laughs> and sitting that close to my head. I would lose it. Now, what's up with... 
that same sequence, he's reminiscing. Again, this is all like fond memories. Kind of like, oh boy, remember that year where I slept in the bay window because my legs didn't work? He's remembering fondly how his mother, who is also recovering, she was in the bedroom upstairs and they would, quote, talk by... By slamming broomsticks against the floor and ceiling. And then we watch for 20 seconds as she's upstairs and she just like pounds with a broomstick and then he pounds the ceiling with a broomstick and they both smile. Wait, wait, they're just like, it's not like Morse code. They're just, right. they're just aimlessly right. banging they're just, like, they, you still they've arranged no, They've arranged no <laughs> signals with each other. No. It's, it's not Morse code. There's no knock three times. Like it is, it's no, just, it's, it's just random. It's random bumping. And it also made me question, why couldn't the two of them recover in the same room and actually just talk like, like it's not like they have malaria like mom has mom has some bum legs and some frostbite right. he has some right. frostbite can't they just move the bed up to her room where they can both I hang out there it. and like play go fish or something like that right. everyone's waiting on us to go up and down like the flights of stairs and two bedpans but <laughs> what's up with, by the way, they got hurt because they went to the secret town meeting that the men in town were having to discuss a strike, which they decide to hold in the black of night in the middle of a horrific snowstorm up on a mountain. <laughs> and his mom comes up to threaten them all with murder. And then on her way down, she just falls in the river. Like, clearly this is a pressing issue for the town. But couldn't you have just had that? Couldn't they be like, you know, let's do the meeting tomorrow. Like, we'll do, yeah. or we'll do it in the church yeah. basement let's or something. Let's t- like, Ted's place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instead of up, What's up, up with- here in the cold of night. Yeah. On <laughs> the Matterhorn going by. What's up with in some of the flashbacks that there's no audio for dialogue? So we're seeing a flashback. The, the dialogue, they're all just mouthing it. But all the Foley work was done so there's still sound effects with them like smacking someone on the head with the ruler or they they are using cutlery and the cutlery makes noise but the dialogue has been removed I, I'm what's glad, up with that so how did you watch the film Where, what did you watch it on I had to rent it from Amazon I was honestly wondering, is this a Blu-ray transfer problem did something get lost nope. in restoration no this is a and you saw the exact same thing. That is really, really weird. What's up with, so I forget this older sister's name who leaves the country with the minor son after getting married, but she really loved the preacher. She comes back to town sans husband. And of course, that's scandalous. Like, what's going on? There's this coffee clutch, busybody woman scene of them all gossiping. And right. it is the most obnoxious scene on celluloid because all of the women are talking about well i don't want to say anything but you know but you know and then one woman whispers to the next woman the word divorce and then she she like whispers to at least a dozen different women the word divorce before she finally announces to the room it's divorce like this is this is absolutely the slowest least effective way to communicate to a group of people possible like deliver them all the message individually then discuss it as a group. And all these women are chewing these donuts really loud, smacking their yes, teeth. Like, smacking their gums. It was yep. so gross. Yeah. It and, was gross. And and I just could it was also a little bit hard to believe. I know this is a different time. I know it's a different place. I know it's a whole different era. But that being that big a deal. Because they weren't even talking about the minister at that point. It was really just 
the fact that she was back in town and the husband's not back in town. So right. must mean divorce. Right. Like, well, stoner then. We- weird. That's definitely something that doesn't transfer culturally. Right. You know, like we we don't – it's hard to understand that. What's up with Hugh being a, a brainiac, a good student, someone who could go on to be a doctor or a lawyer? He throws that all away to toil in the mines because he's got hats for his sister-in-law. But then he also – we get a scene of him down in the mine – and he's holding a bar, like like a chisel. He's holding it against the rock while another man, like an older, heavier man, swings a 20-pound hammer at the edge of his chisel, yeah. which is like right by his face. Yeah. Now, I would imagine that a smart person doesn't <laughs> hold something right by their face, that they know another person in a dimly lit tunnel is going to be swinging a hammer was, as was hard as he can. Was he wearing, like, safety goggles or no, anything? Like, no, <laughs> They don't talk about anyone getting maimed or anything. I mean, it's just like, this is the bad idea genes, like, yeah, poster right, child right, right. here. My, I could go on and on and on. I, I'll just end with one more because I honestly didn't understand this. When he first meets that potential sister-in-law and he yeah. falls in love instantly, there's like this scene with a receiving line where she comes in, um, his brother uh, to whom she's going to be uh, married, he comes in, and then all the other brothers are brought in and like a receiving line. They're standing in the living room just sort of facing the, the soon-to-be couple, and the dad basically shoes Hugh out of the room like hey you, you got to get out of here your time will come oh. why did he kick him out of that room it was like did dad already know that he's perving out on his future sister-in-law it was like you know he could see like you got to get out of here and go take a cold shower and think about baseball <laughs> or is he just is there some cultural thing where only he the was oldest too young sons needed to approve the yeah I, it was I, weird. I was like, I don't understand what's going on here. Yeah, maybe just another thing that didn't translate. I, I don't know. Before we jump into the five questions segment of the show, uh, we actually have our first entry ever in uh, Movie Outsiders Poetry. We didn't write it. Uh, longtime oh. listener of the podcast sent in a poem that she wrote as a sophomore in high school based not on the movie, but on the book, which is essentially... The same thing. And I thought I'd read it to you and get your thoughts on the poem. It's called Silent, Silently It Comes. Let me just first thank the listener. That's great. And I, I strongly urge all of our listeners to submit a poem of their own. Of course. We, this is, this is a first this. and I'm really excited. Yeah, yes, yeah. So yes. thank you, listener. This is great. Creeping low to the ground it comes. Choking, blinding, hiding. Slowly cutting off the force of life. No time to prepare for the inevitable. You must watch it come, and know nothing can be done. Being brutish and black, its hungry fingers reach and grab all things that are good and green. Its path is not straight or direct. It simply engulfs everything, leaving nothing. Being brutish and black, it chokes, blinds, and destroys. And that's Silently It Comes. I think it's really impressive. I am... floored that someone composed that and that they took the time to share it with us and i hope that i hope all the high school english teachers who listen to the podcast really appreciate that yeah absolutely and uh, and, and maybe they consider 
assigning this book to their class next year and maybe making them watch the movie and then requesting that all their students write <laughs> listen a poem. to the podcast maybe too and listen to the podcast yeah. man what a what a whole unit yes. teachers you just got like a semester off the courtesy of movie outsiders <laughs> right. and spoiler alert podcast <laughs> buddy are you ready for five questions yes completely all right uh five listeners submitted questions for 1941's How Green... It was, it, it, the movie was probably 1940, right? It won the Oscar in 1941. Is that the way it worked? It might have been different back then. And we're going to do them for How Green Was My Valley, <laughs> directed by John Ford. The, now, wait. Are the questions about 1940's How Green Was My Valley or 1941's How Green Was My remake, Valley? The remake? The next year's the, remake? Yeah. Right. The sequel. Yeah. Uh, the same title. For, first one we've already addressed, and it is in the form of an answer. How Green Was My Valley is the favorite film of this longtime quiz show host. Oh, Alex Trebek. The question is, who is Alex Alex Trebek? Yes, yeah. That's great. All right. Uh, Second question. Do you dread having to review most best pictures before 1970? No. Dread is a really strong word. I... It, I, I do feel like there's this mountain of worry every time leading up to one because I just I worry that it's going to be boring. But I have been really impressed with a number of them. I know it, we talk about it a lot, but I come back to 1930s All Quiet on the Western Front and just how impressed I really was with that movie and the filmmaking involved. And so I, I, I take it as a real opportunity to watch them, but, but I'm never too excited about it. Uh, next question. During his State of the Union address, President Trump touted ending the war on beautiful, clean coal. Coal looks pretty filthy to me. Who is really clamoring to be a coal miner? There are a lot of ex-coal miners, I think, today in West Virginia and other states that would love to be coal miners again. So I I do think there's a contingent. But I don't think any of them would want to be a coal miner the way these guys were coal miners. These conditions sucked. The safety sucked. Yeah. Having that dude swing a 20-pound hammer five inches from your face all day sucked. Yeah. Children working alongside you sucked. Sure. So I don't think anyone wants to be this kind of coal miner. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Next question. Richard Llewellyn penned three sequels to this novel. Up Into the Singing Mountain, Down Where the Moon is Small, and Green Green My Valley Now. Should Hollywood complete the film quadrilogy? Oh, I definitely think it should. And I think there should be a shared universe. I think we should have the uh, the How Green Was My Valley cinematic universe. And every other year we get a, we get a new entry into the series. We could do some standalones written by other right. authors. Yeah. They should be uh, all put out by Focus Features. And uh, Jim Broadbent should have to be in all of them. <laughs> would be good. Yeah, Johnny Greenwood doing the score. Yeah, it'd be Ooh, great. Ooh, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, see, I got your, I got your interest there. Yeah, <laughs> Johnny Greenwood. Nice. Uh, final question: Die Bando asks Mr. Jonas, and it bears repeating. How would you use your stick on a boy one third your size? Boy, listeners, these questions. I mean, it's almost tip of the cap. To how crude the questions are. That's a good one. Our That's, position. That, one, that one's really nice. Each week. Uh, yeah. I won't answer that. But it, I guess tip of the cap. But come on, listeners. <laughs> Church it up a little bit. Uh, buddy, final thoughts. Uh, I think it's well ma- a well-made film about a story I could give a shit about. And I'm stunned that it beat Maltese Falcon. And in hindsight, that it beat Citizen Kane. How about you? Okay. Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way about it. I doubt this is one 
that I would care to revisit. I just, I, I think ultimately I just didn't care that much about anybody in the movie. I think maybe there were just too many people, too much going on, crammed into this two-hour-long story for me to really feel. I didn't feel against anybody. I just didn't know anybody, and so it was hard to really, really care what was happening in the town. Unfortunately for me, perhaps the book is way better. Well, why don't you read it and get back to us? On Sounds that. good. Sounds good. What in do we got coming meantime, up next? We'll look forward to next week's episode in which we'll discuss the new heist comedy, Ocean's 8, starring just about everybody. Thanks for listening to the Spoiler Alert podcast. Please visit us online at movieoutsiders.com, where you can see what films we'll be discussing next, comment on our recent episodes, suggest movies to review or topics to discuss, or submit questions for the five questions segment of the podcast. Stop by and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash movieoutsiders, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at movieoutsiders. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast subscription service you use. We'll be back again next week with another episode, but until then, enjoy the movies.